Oh, Jesus, um, we come to you today after the, the storms this weekend, uh, many of us shaken. We thank you that you ride among us. Peaceful Lord, mighty Savior, come and bring your peace. Come and bring your rule among us. We submit ourselves to you together, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, uh, if the donkey didn't give that away already. (laughs) Um, The beginning of Holy Week, the last week of Lent, it is the most solemn season in our calendar. It's a time when we as the church fix our attention on the last days before our Lord's crucifixion, when we come alongside Jesus on the hard road to the cross, witnessing his love for us and the cost of our sin. It's a dark road, but it's also the road that leads to resurrection, our lives and all the world made new. Our celebration of Jesus' victory a week from today on Easter will be all the sweeter if we have walked this dark road with him to get there. As we pick up the gospel account in Matthew chapter 21, we meet Jesus on his way into Jerusalem. At this point, for several years, he's been traveling around the region doing incredible things, performing unheralded miracles, never seen before, teaching with amazing authority. And in the process, he stirred up a whole lot of speculation about who he was. There were people said, that said he was a charlatan. Some said he might be a demoniac. Others said he's just a teacher. Some said, well, he's a prophet, like in the Old Testament, maybe another Elijah or Elijah himself. And some said, this might even be the Messiah. In many ways, Jesus intentionally allowed these questions surrounding his identity to persist. In the Gospel of Mark, he frequently tells people that he's healed to be quiet about it. On several occasions, he makes the specific point that he specifically says that the time has not yet come for him to reveal himself publicly. So that even John the Baptist, the first to hail him as God's chosen, begins to doubt whether Jesus is actually the Messiah when he doesn't do everything that John expected him to. Well, this all seems pretty strange to us. Why would Jesus keep his identity a secret? Well, I think the simple answer is that telling people he was the Messiah would not have helped them understand who he was or what he was doing. Jesus was and is the Messiah, but most of the time saying that would have actually been misleading because of the people's ideas about what Messiah meant. See, the people thought they knew exactly what the Messiah was coming to do. But Jesus' identity and his mission were far bigger and more beautiful than anything they were dreaming about. They wouldn't really understand what Messiah meant until Jesus showed them. The word Messiah means anointed one. In Greek, it's translated as Christ. Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means king. Uh, So every time you hear Jesus Christ, what you're hearing is King Jesus. But not just a regular king, like King of Kings, like King in all capital letters. So for first century Jews, the Messiah He was the ultimate priest king, the chosen one, promised and waited for. He was God's righteous representative who was going to come and bring deliverance to Israel and judgment on their enemies forevermore. He was imagined as holy warrior par excellence, the hero, the real Superman. So to say that you were the Messiah in first century Israel was basically a declaration of war, literal war, on Israel's enemies. You say, I'm the Messiah, you're saying... I'm starting a revolution right now. 
the appearance of a credible Messiah would have created a huge response among the people of Israel. Jesus was pretty credible given all the miracles. If Jesus had just gone around saying, I'm the Messiah, a lot of people would have rallied to him, ready to fight a war with Rome. Indeed, there were times when Jesus almost had an army at his back, even as he avoided that. Uh, After he fed the 5,000, you guys may remember that he had to leave really quickly because it says... The people were getting ready to come and take him by force to make him king. Can you imagine that? It's like they were going to throw Jesus over their shoulder and march on Jerusalem whether he liked it or not. He had power they wanted to use. Well, the Romans and the Jewish leaders that owed them allegiance knew all of this very well. So again, anyone claiming to be the Messiah would have been challenging them directly. That's how they would have seen it. They didn't appreciate that very much. Uh, You guys may remember uh, what happened when the the wise men came and uh, told Herod, King Herod at the time, back in the nativity story, that a new king had been born. His response to that was to murder an entire town full of children just in case. Saying you were the Messiah was the kind of thing that would get you killed very quickly. Now, Jesus was not unwilling to die. That's obvious by the end of the story. So it's not that Jesus was just trying to avoid confrontation with Rome or Israel's leaders. It's that he was preparing for a different kind of battle than either Rome or Israel expected the Messiah to fight. He absolutely intended to bring deliverance to God's people and God's judgment on his enemies. He was definitely starting a revolution. But the scope of his fight was not merely national. It was cosmic. So because of the difference in popular expectation and the reality of the Messiah's mission, Jesus kept his identity quiet until that is exactly the right moment. The triumphal entry, uh, what we're celebrating today, what we reenacted out there just a few minutes ago is when and how Jesus chose to publicly announce himself as Messiah, as king to the world. It's the big reveal. That is what Palm Sunday is all about. As we read the gospel story, there's so much specific detail. There was nothing random about Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. The moment and all its specifics were chosen very carefully. And it comes through in the passage. Instead of telling everyone, I'm the Messiah, instead Jesus creates a picture that was meant to speak a thousand words to everyone who saw it. And it's very clear from what happens in the passage that the people understood what he was communicating to them. Rome and Israel both understood what Jesus was saying. But the imagery is largely lost on us all these years later, so I want to make it clear today. The key to understanding what Jesus was communicating on this ride is an Old Testament passage that he knew he was fulfilling. He was fulfilling it on purpose. It comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah says, the king is coming. The ultimate king is on his way, and he's going to come riding a donkey. A couple of things I want you to see here. In our culture, the donkey does not get a lot of respect. (laughs) 
If there's a donkey in a story, it's almost always there as comic relief. That's been true from Shakespeare all the way to Shrek. Uh, <laughs> you remember, yeah. Uh, if you call someone a donkey, it's not a compliment, right? Uh, we have more colorful ways of saying that in English. I'm not going to do that up here. Um, then, then Zechariah comes and he says the Messiah will come humbly on a donkey. Humbly. And it sort of doubles down on our impression that the point in all of this is that Jesus is lowly in this moment. that The opposite of royal. But that is not how people would have seen Jesus on this day. In the Old Testament, and so in the Jewish people's imagination, donkeys actually had a deep association with the king and with the appearance or arrival of a king in a special way. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, and you've got the, prof, uh, the, the patriarch Jacob prophesying that his son Judah uh, would, would have a royal line, that, that, he, that he and his descendants would rule among his people. And he, he describes this using a picture, imagery, of a donkey's colt attached to a grapevine. So royalty and the donkey are attached there. Then Saul, uh, when, when Saul, Israel's very first king, goes out looking for his dad's lost donkeys, that's what he went to do, he finds Samuel who anoints him Israel's king instead. He goes looking for donkeys and finds a crown. And then Solomon was publicly recognized as king of Israel for the very first time as a kid when David put him on his very own donkey and sent him out to ride among the people. And keep in mind that son of David ends up being a title for the Messiah ever after. And then we have Zechariah saying that the Messiah specifically will come to you on a donkey. So the donkey was understood to be a kingly mount, but in a very special sense. You see, the donkey and the rider's humility here are meant as a contrast to the king's other form of transportation, the war horse. Remember, Zechariah said the Messiah would come humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and then he immediately says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The point is that a king goes to war on a horse, or pulled behind one in a chariot, but he comes home to rule on a donkey. So the donkey was assigned to Rome and to the Jewish people, cutting against all the assumptions they had about the Messiah, that he would come with war. Jesus riding on a donkey essentially says, I'm not storming this city. I'm coming home to rule what is already mine. And the people get the message. They understand exactly what he's saying. Look at their response. See the shout that they raise, quoting straight from Psalm 118. They're singing Psalm 118 to him. And it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The king comes in the name of the Lord, peace and glory. It's like they just read Zechariah, right? They know what he's saying, and they accept it, and they agree with it. Yes, you are the king, and we celebrate it. Bring your peace, yes. The Pharisees also understand, but they push back. In John's account of this event, uh, they say, Rabbi, very pointedly, right? You're not the king, we know who you really are. Rabbi, teacher, deny these people's response. Tell them that they've misunderstood. Tell them you're just a teacher riding a donkey. All a big misunderstanding. And Jesus says to them that the people's shouts are so correct, so true, so necessary, that if they didn't shout these words of praise, that the rocks, the rocks themselves would cry out, Hosanna. 
The speculation can end. This is the big reveal. Publicly, Jesus affirms the crowd shouts of praise and deliverance. He is the Messiah. He is coming to rule. He is coming home to Jerusalem, triumphant, without an army. He comes in peace. But how can he come in peace? That does not make any sense in this situation. How can the ruler of Israel ride into Jerusalem in peace while it is still occupied by enemy forces? Doesn't make any sense. Well, peace here does not mean the absence of conflict. We often think that peace means not causing any trouble or not bothering anybody or not causing a fuss. Jesus was causing a real big fuss. Jesus isn't avoiding anything. Riding into Jerusalem like this is shockingly bold. It is a direct challenge to the rulers of this world and the powers and principalities behind them. They'd already been trying to kill him. Now he rides right into their hands, unarmed, and he goes all the way to the temple and essentially takes control over it, which is also something that only the king should ever do or would be expected to do. It's another claim to be the true king, the Messiah. So by doing things in this way, Jesus seems to say, in effect, here I am. Crown me or kill me, but make no mistake, I am the king. Bold as he is, kingly as he is, Jesus does come in peace. He comes defenseless, with no sword, with no blood on his hands, with no army, though he might easily have had one, or legions of angels had he chosen. And this will be interpreted as weakness and naivety by those who seek to destroy him. It'll be the opportunity they've been looking for to end his challenge to their authority. They can't wait. Their mouths are watering. They're wringing their hands. They think he's made a mistake. They think that he has overplayed his hand. But it wasn't a mistake. Jesus has chosen this moment to reveal himself as Messiah. He has done it in this specific way Because he has chosen this moment to die. With this ride, Jesus announces that he's king and simultaneously, again, puts himself into the hands of the people whose power he's challenging. Rome will not be able to ignore his claim, made so publicly as tens of thousands of people pour into the city for the Passover celebration. Pilate doesn't take his claim seriously, but he will have to address it now. And there will be no chance for the people to muster a revolt in Jesus' name. There's not going to be a war. There's no chance for it. Jesus has chosen his moment well. He's chosen Passover, the great celebration of the Exodus, of Yahweh defeating the gods of Egypt and leading his people out of bondage, of God's judgment passing over Israel when he saw the blood of lambs on their doorposts. That's important. The king of kings comes in peace. The Lion of Judah comes as the Passover Lamb, and it is as Lamb that he will do battle. This is really interesting. The path that Jesus rode from Bethpage to the temple, that's the path that he's taking on this triumphal entry, was the very same path that the sacrificial lamb traveled every year as a part of the Passover celebration. And the shouts that the people are raising, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, I told you, they're they're triumphant. They're straight out of the Psalms. But if you read the very next line of that psalm, it says, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The people weren't saying it. They weren't shouting it. They weren't thinking it. 
But you know that those words echoed in Jesus' ears. He knew what came next in the psalm, and he knew what came next for him. A call to bring forth the sacrificial lamb, and so up he went. And so it was not by force of arms or armies that the creator of the world came to liberate his people and bring his kingdom. He came as sacrifice. His weapon, the cross, the blood spilled, his own. The exodus that he accomplished was not merely saving Israel from a foreign oppressor, though that is what the people wanted the most, it's what they were looking for. But Israel had been saved from the oppression of enemies many times before, and it never lasted. Uh, This is really, really interesting, and I wish I could spend more time on this, but I encourage you to go look it up yourselves. About a hundred years earlier, uh, Simon Maccabee, Uh, had ridden into Jerusalem in an event, in a triumphal entry that looked almost just like this. And and I guarantee you this is what was on the mind of the people as Jesus was riding in. Simon uh, had led a a revolt against the, the Greek forces that had conquered Israel and controlled it at the time, and he was successfully overthrowing them. He won, and so people, he rode into Jerusalem victorious, and people were shouting his name, and they literally waved palm fronds at him and threw them down at his feet, and he went to the temple and ran everybody out and purified it. He, he took it back because he conquered Israel's enemies. In many ways, Simon was everything that Israel wanted in a hero, everything they wanted in a Messiah. He succeeded. He did those things. The problem is, it wasn't enough. Within just a few short generations, the Maccabee dynasty had become corrupt and Rome had taken back over. It's like nothing had ever really changed. See, each time Israel was rescued from human oppressors, they remained slaves. They remained slaves to the power of sin and death, to their own brokenness, which never ceased to oppress them, which never ceased to lead them back into captivity. But Jesus' battle, the exodus that he would lead, was from the powers of sin and death themselves, not just their human agents. Again, he wasn't avoiding the Romans and Herodians. He was going beyond them to destroy the powers behind them. His victory then wasn't just for Israel, but for all of the fallen world. It was for us, too. That's the meaning of Palm Sunday, friends. Jesus revealed as king and sacrifice, as lion and as lamb on his way to be enthroned, not on a gilded chair, but on the cross, to fight and win against the forces of darkness through the power of suffering love. His coming may have looked powerless, but he came as so much more than a conqueror. That's the meaning of Palm Sunday. That's what we celebrate today. But as always, it's not enough to understand what today is about. The question has to follow What does Palm Sunday mean for us? Why does it matter? Well, friends, I invite you to see Jesus, to picture him, to see him riding to you as he rode towards Jerusalem that day. See him now coming towards you on the donkey. Because Jesus comes to us today and every day very much as he came to Jerusalem then. He comes as king without sword or army. He is Lord. To know him, really to know him, it's to understand that his claim over your life is total. It's total. (laughs) And yet he seems easy to ignore, doesn't he? He's not going to force you to obey. He will not coerce you. 
or manipulate you or demand your loyalty. And so we find ourselves facing the same choice that Israel faced. The king of kings comes to us, but he will not enforce his will upon us. So we have to choose. Will we crown him? Or will we sacrifice him to the other lords that we prefer? Will we hand him over to the other loyalties and allegiances that run our lives? The ones whose power and authority seem more potent to us, if we're honest. Who seem more able to get us what we want, what we need. Power, money, prestige, security, freedom, whatever it is. The ones whose power we're more afraid to deny or live without. Make no mistake. Jesus comes to overthrow every other Lord. And so the question stands, who is Jesus coming to unseat in your heart, in your life? What else sits on his throne? When Jesus makes his claim over your life, what in you protests? What part of you wants to silence his claim, to look the other way? Where are you tempted like the Pharisees to demote him from Lord to teacher, just a guy who gives helpful pointers and tips that you can ignore as you please and use when he's useful. Jesus is no mere teacher. He is the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How will we respond to this humble king today? That's the question that Palm Sunday asks us. As he rode to Jerusalem, he rides to us. Friends, where do you need this king today? Where are you shaken? Where are you hurting? Where is the humility and gentleness of this mighty king good news to you today? Where does the news that he comes differently than all the power brokers of the world, where is that good news to you today? Where is the truth that he does not traffic in the same powers and abuses? Where is that good news to you today? In just a minute, we're going to come to the rail. As you come to the rail for communion, let our response be to fall on his grace. Friends, our king is full of mercy. He rode with tears in his eyes, Scripture says, on his way into Jerusalem, not thinking about his own imminent suffering, terrible though it was going to be, but grieving for all those who were going to reject him and for the death and destruction that that would bear in their lives and in ours. He knows your weakness. He knows mine, but he comes to rescue. He comes even now to do battle for you as lamb, as sacrifice. So come. Come and receive the bread. Come come and receive the wine. His blood spilled, his body broken for you. Come and submit. Come and submit to his gentle rule. Come and ask him to tear down every other Lord that sits enthroned in your life, and he will. This peaceful king is strong enough to conquer them all. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we come submitting ourselves to you. Thank you that you are different from every other Lord that we've ever seen or imagined. You are so much better. So come and rule and reign in